Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. Those of you who know me, no surprise, we've been watching a, a decent amount of basketball um, over the past couple. Praise God for it. Man, he's so kind. So uh, lots of TVs set up in the living room and kids staying up later than they normally would and lots of bracket filling out and, and all those good things. Uh, well, if you watch those games, I mean, there's, there's so many of them and you know, it's such a big tournament. There's so many rounds to it that one comment you'll hear fairly regularly is at the end of a game, the announcers will talk about this team really deserves to win because of doing these particular things or because these players put forth this kind of effort or whatever. So that's something they're sort of weighing like, okay, this team won, but, but they really deserve to win. And, and, and for these reasons, well, the, the, the Bible commends even commands worship of God for all people. That's what we, what we were created for, is to worship God, every single person that was, was created. But does he deserve it? Of course, we understand the answer to that question, but it's still good to back up and to ask the question again, and then to think about the particular reasons. Does God deserve worship? And even if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Christ, you, you probably don't necessarily think all your worship should go to God, but you still have a category for all sorts of things in this universe that don't deserve worship. So, so is God worthy of worship? Well, our passage's answer, same as the Bible's in full, the answer is yes. And that's kind of what this passage is getting at. So hear the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So this passage, like so many in the book of Acts, begins with a miracle. And it's a miracle that jump jump starts a response from the people as they're sort of interacting with this miracle. And then their response triggers off an, a response from Paul and, and Barnabas. And and it's it's those responses that we're going to look at sort of in turn. But in God's providence, all three of these scenes are teaching us the same big idea about God, which is that God is worthy of worship. That's the thing we see all throughout these three scenes. God is worthy of worship. And, and we're going to see that God is worthy of worship by way of four particular bits of instruction that were given in our passage. And that's how we're going to look at the passage this morning, and it's, it's laid out there on the outline. So, so this is the instruction for us from this passage. So first, remember that salvation comes through faith apart from works. That's the first thing we'll see. Second, always deflect the glory to God. It's the second piece of instruction. Third, don't put your hope in idols. And finally, don't feel the need to defend God. So look at the initial scene here, the, the miracle that occurs. Verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. 
He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. We've seen this happen in gospel stories with Jesus. We, we saw it happen in the book of Acts back in, in chapter three. There's a man who has a condition that has kept him from ever being able to walk. So he's, he's been lame from birth, has never been able to stand upon his feet. And he listens to Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel. And then the Lord works through the apostles and their proclamation of the gospel and provides this man with healing where then he can stand up. He can do this thing he's never done before and he can walk. And this is the kind of God that we serve. So he's powerful. You know, for, for him to heal this man, to perform this miracle is nothing for the Lord. It's not taxing. It's not something that he had to sort of save up his reserves to do. No, it's nothing to the Lord to heal him. And he's compassionate, which is really at the heart of every miracle story. He's such a good God. So, so we see that just right off the top. But, but we want to remember, don't forget miracles in Scripture. They're always shadows of the gospel. They're always shadows of the gospel. And this is what sort of the, the mainstream church or, or, or a church or Christians that would sort of be more theologically liberal, this is what they're regularly missing. So they're good at looking at the compassion of the Lord in particular, maybe even the power of the Lord. But what they miss is almost the most significant part, which is that these miracles aren't just miracles in themselves. They're, they're not only for healing. They're pointing to something much greater to a much greater healing. So there's a story in Luke chapter five. It's also about a man who's never been able to walk. You might remember this. His friends bring him to Jesus. They bring him in on a cot and they bring him to Jesus for healing. And you might remember this, but instead of healing him, the first thing Jesus does is he says, your sins are forgiven. So that's what he says. They bring him for healing. Jesus doesn't say you're healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now listen to Jesus's explanation about that that helps us understand this lesson, that miracles are pointing to something greater. This is Luke chapter five, verse 23. Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what had been lying on what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So you see, Jesus was using the miracle of healing that man, making him walk to point to the greater spiritual truth, which is that the, the greatest disease he had was his sin. And that was his greatest need was to have his sins forgiven. And, and for us as Christians, the healing that takes place in the miracle in our passage, it's a tiny picture pointing forward to a much greater miracle, the miracle of our, our salvation in Christ. And your salvation, just so we remember, your salvation is a much greater miracle than this man being healed and being able to walk when he had never been able to walk before. That's an incredible miracle. Your salvation in Christ is a greater miracle. In fact, the guy in our story, his physical state, it's exactly like your spiritual state was before you were saved, before your sins were forgiven in Christ. Look back at verse eight. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. You can hear how redundant this verse is. If you put this in an English paper, your, your teacher would probably say, okay, you just need one of those lines. You don't have to say the same thing three different ways. But Luke here says the same thing three different ways. So we're told he could not use his feet first. He had been crippled from birth. And then finally, he, he had never walked. So Luke is sure to make it so clear. This man is helpless 
and hopeless. He's never been able to walk. He's never going to be able to walk, at least not in the strength of men, not in any remedy we have. And see, before you were a Christian, that was you. You were like this guy spiritually. You were not able to walk spiritually. You were not able to pursue the Lord. And you never could have done that on your own. You never could have manufactured that. You, you might have even recognized that, just like the man in our story. Before you were a Christian, you might have thought, you know, I'd like to be a better person. I would like to not be a slave to my sin. I'd, I'd like to have a love for the Lord, but I just don't have the ability to do it. Right before Christ, we were like this man who couldn't walk. But look at what happens in our passage, verse 9. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. Okay, so let's stop there. What, what does he have faith in? Because in our culture, people love the idea of faith, right? From George Michael in the 80s, all the way, some of you don't understand the reference, all the way to the present. But as you hear the culture talk about faith, what you realize is the way they're talking about it, there's no cognitive part to it. It's almost faith in faith, right? What, are, what you're believing in is belief, there's not an object of the faith. There's not an object of the belief or the trust. So, so what is it that this man has faith in? Well, it's the thing Paul was speaking about. What does Paul speak about? The gospel of Christ. That's what Paul is talking to these folks about. So Paul believed, or this man believed what Paul was saying about Jesus. Well, he was believing what Paul was saying about Jesus, that, that Jesus is the perfectly righteous son of God who went to the cross to pay for our sins so that when we put our hope and trust in him alone, apart from works, when we trust in Christ alone, our sins are covered and we're saved. We're made God's children. So, okay, why does Luke only use that word faith? Why doesn't he say faith in Christ? Or, or why doesn't he enlarge on the idea? Well, it's because he's, he's firmly established through the book of Acts that saving faith is faith in Christ. So in the book of Acts, by this point, he can just use faith as shorthand. Because you can go back in the book and see what he means by faith. It's just a shortened version of faith in the gospel of Christ. But he, he does make it explicit earlier on in the book. So let me read you this passage. This is Acts chapter 3, verse 16. It's a story about another man who couldn't walk. And this is what we're told there. And Jesus' name, by faith in Jesus' name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Okay, so that's the kind of faith that he's talking about here. It's faith in Christ. So that's what this man is believing that then the Lord is going to use to achieve this miracle. Now, we don't want to mess this up. It's not this man's faith that was actually doing anything. So it's not like his faith was the one achieving this healing. No, no, faith is kind of like the role of a, of a hose on a fire truck where all it does is hook up to the hydrant. That's all it does. It's the water that's doing the work. The hose just gets to the water. That's what faith does. Faith isn't doing anything really. Faith connects you to Christ, who's the one who does everything. It's the channel that the Lord uses to connect us to his son. And it's salvation that the Lord gives this man in our story. Verse 9. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And this is how quickly Jesus gives new life. 
You know, this guy didn't have to do physical therapy. He didn't have to go through any sort of process. No, he was healed. And then he could stand up and he could walk. And if you remember your conversion, if you, if you remember back, some, some folks here, you, you became a Christian so early on that the same thing we pray for our kids, that they wouldn't be able to remember a day when they weren't trusting in Christ. Some of you, that was you, and praise God for it. Some of us can look back and can remember becoming a Christian. We can remember our conversion. And think about it. It really worked the same way. You became a new person, didn't you? It happened quick. And that didn't take months. It didn't take weeks. It was instantaneous. Now, you didn't become instantly perfect. Even Christians in here that have been Christians 50 years, they're not perfect, right? Until we die or Christ comes back, we're all going to be sinful. But you became different than you had been the day before, didn't you? That's how conversion works. You were made a new creation. You were like this man. You sprang up and began walking. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, this is what's being held out to you. This kind of new life, you can have new life spiritually by holding on to Christ. You can be freed from your sin, but it's only available through placing your full hope and confidence in Christ, turning from your sin, deciding that you want to love Jesus more than you love your sin and that he is your only hope. If you're interested in talking more about that, thinking more about that, talk to me after the service, shoot me an email, talk to a member of this church about the gospel of Christ, becoming a Christian. But, but for all of us, what we want to notice now is, is that salvation comes through faith apart from works. So this guy, he couldn't walk on his own, but, but through being connected to Christ, then all of a sudden he was healed. And of course, God gets all the glory for that. So remember, salvation comes through faith apart from works. You didn't save yourself, God did. And that kind of God is, is worthy of worship. But, but of course, the people here, there's some confusion about who did this impressive thing. So we know, oh, the Lord is the one who did it. The Lord deserves, deserves the glory for it. But look at what the people standing around there were thinking. Verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So since these people, they see the miracle and they're not Jews, they're not familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, they're not familiar with the God of Israel, so they see a miracle, and then instantly they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. So that's what's happening here. So they call Paul Hermes. Hermes was the Greek god who was sort of the spokesman for the gods. So Paul's doing most of the talking, so they think, oh, that must be Hermes. And then Barnabas, they call Zeus because either he seemed to be the leader or they just thought, okay, well, if, if Paul is Hermes and then this other guy must be Zeus. Now, at this point, it, it looks like Paul and Barnabas don't really know what's going on because the Lyconians are speaking in their own language and Paul and Barnabas don't, don't understand that, but they figured out pretty quick because of what happens in verse 13. And the priest of, this, of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So, so these townsfolks, they're actually about to offer some sacrifices to offer these oxen for Paul and Hermes, like gods, to worship them, to try to appease them. So, so this is a pretty wild scene that, they're, that they think Paul and Barnabas are actually Greek gods that have come down and they're treating them as such. And the thing is, we think about it that way and we think, oh man, I've never seen anything like that. And yeah, to that degree, right, you could go some places in the world where that would happen. 
but not in our context, not in this culture. But there are times where you have probably, as a Christian, experienced something kind of like this, even if it's quantitatively different. So, so not when it comes to healing someone, but, but for some other fruit in your life. So think about some of these things. Maybe it's the condition of your kids. So if you've got kids who are older and they're actively pursuing the Lord, they're faithful Christians, maybe they've done good in school, they're fairly responsible. As a parent, don't you have people coming up to you and trying to give you the praise for that? You do, don't you? So maybe at graduation or when you see certain family of other kids in the high school that your kids went to school with, You've had people that come up to you and they're trying to praise you for that. Oh, what a good job you guys did. Maybe even asking, what'd you do? You know, they're, they're trying to give you the glory for that success, acting like you're the one responsible for it. Or if, if you're kind and patient with people at work, don't you have people giving you the praise for that? Telling you how good you are? What a great person. What a good coworker. Like you're the one that's responsible for those characteristics that, that are in you. You know, as, as a Christian, that's the kind of thing that's going to happen for the rest of your life. People probably aren't going to try to worship you. Almost undoubtedly, that's not going to happen. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. But oftentimes, people are going to try to give you glory that you don't deserve and that God deserves. They don't know any better. So they just think that good thing was produced by you, and they're going to try to give you the glory for it. So as a Christian, how will you respond? Well, look at how Paul and Barnabas respond to the folks in this town trying to give them the glory. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And this is the second main instruction from our passage. Always deflect the glory to God. Always deflect the glory to God. And you might remember, this is the complete opposite of what King Herod did back in chapter 12. This is Acts 12, verse 22. And the people were shouting, this is after Herod gives a speech, and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man, talking about Herod. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. But see, Paul and Barnabas, they deflect the glory to God. So once they figure out people are trying to give them worship, people are trying to give them the glory for this miracle, they instantly deflect the glory. So the, the first thing we're told they do is they, they, they tore their garments. That was a custom in the ancient Near East. It was in the same vein as wiping the dirt off your shoes, like we talked about last week or two weeks ago. So basically the idea was it, it showed your complete disapproval of something if you would tear your clothes. You want nothing to do with the thing that is happening in front of you. And that was Paul and Barnabas. They, they completely disapprove of these folks trying to worship them. Which, isn't that such a good picture? You look at the length that they go to, ripping their clothes. That's the kind of angst that they feel when God isn't getting the glory he deserves. And that should be part of our heart too, right? We should want that more than anything else for God to get the glory that he deserves. And when we see that not happening, that's the kind of, and again, now culturally it's different, right? Not saying that we have to rip off our coats or whatever, but that sort of heart that you see in that, that sort of uh, uh, effort to show people this is crazy, we should have that same sort of effort. That's what Paul and Barnabas do here. They completely disapprove of this, these folks trying to worship them. And after all, the, the very first commandment in the law covenant is you shall have no other gods before me. It's the first one. So Paul and Barnabas take that seriously. They only want worship to go to God. So they tear their clothes saying, you, you guys, you offering us worship is insane. 
We want nothing to do with it. And then after they tear their clothes, we're told in verse 14, they rushed out into the crowd. Now, we think there's a good chance that part of what they were doing is trying to show that they were with the sinful people. So the people were trying to kind of put them up on a pedestal. By rushing into the crowd, it looks like they were trying to say, no, we're on the same ground as you guys. We're sinners. Just like you guys, we, we belong in this group. Verse 15, look at what they say. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And that's the same kind of thing we should do as Christians when we have opportunity. So, so when your non-Christian neighbor is talking about how, how good you are, how you're in a totally different category than, than they are, then you can do what the apostles do here. You can say, hey, I'm of like nature with you. I'm a sinner the same way that you're a sinner. Parents, you, you should do this with your kids, right? Every now and then remind your kids that, that your flesh is just as sinful as their flesh. Praise the Lord. You don't have to look for those opportunities. They come along anytime you sin against your kids. Do you think that'll happen today? Probably, right? And that's an opportunity because, because our kids, it's, it's so easy For anybody under our authority to think, oh, they're different than I am. They're better. Mom and dad know the Lord. They're good in a way that I'm not good. No. No. We're the same. We all have the sinful flesh. We're of like nature with them. Now, as Christians, when when it comes to our sin nature, the only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is the Christian's sin nature no longer makes him guilty in God's eyes because of Jesus' blood. That's the only difference. But we all have that sin nature. We all have as much of that sin nature. The only difference is the Christian sin nature no longer makes him guilty in God's eyes because of Jesus's blood. And because Paul and Barnabas know that, they're not willing to accept any glory from these folks. Verse 15 again, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So they're deflecting the glory offered to them back to the living God who really deserves it. So, so when someone tries to offer you the glory, don't just stop with, hey, I'm, I'm a sinner like you. Do what they do here. Go the next step and point them to the living God. Go, go the next step and say what Jesus would have us say from Mark chapter 10, verse 18. Why do you call me good? That's step one. But then there's step two. No one is good except God alone. So you're not just deflecting the ball anywhere. You're deflecting it back to the Lord. No one's good except God alone. Jude and Nora have a basketball hoop on the back of their door, which is the best. And they used to be little. So I could shoot and they would jump and try to block it, but to no avail. And it was awesome. Now they're both tall enough where they can block every single shot. So I will shoot and Jude will just send it back over and over and over again, or I'll shoot and Nora will send it back. So that, that's the idea. When it comes to people trying to give you glory, just, just send it back, right? But a God worthy of worship obviously deserves any glory somebody is trying to give you to always deflect the glory to God. But, but hopefully, as we think about this, we'll recognize a lot of times we're the people that are trying to offer God's glory to something else. So it's not just that we're on the receiving end. In fact, probably more often, We're on the end that's trying to give it. And this is our third main instruction this morning. Don't put your hope in idols. Don't put your hope in idols. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, or maybe you know, okay, American idol, but there it's framed like a good thing. What does that really mean in the Bible? 
An idol just means a fake God. That's what an idol is. It's a fake God. It's, it's any created thing that we give our worship to. And, and remember, there's only one thing in the history of the universe that is not created, and that's God. So we only give our worship to a non-created thing. That's a category of one. It's God. Anytime we give our worship to any created thing, then that's worshiping the creation. That's worship not going to God. That's idol worship. But see, our passage is telling us, don't put your hope in idols. Verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, as Christians, we we know God's word says we shouldn't worship things other than him. And, And we also know it's really easy to view commands like this as a negative, like God keeping something good from us. So easy for us to do that. If there's a rule, it's easy for us to feel like, oh, this is a bad thing. This rule is trying to keep something from me. God's command is trying to keep something away from us. But look at how Paul and Barnabas characterize idol worship. Middle of verse 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So what they say is it's part of the good news that we no longer have to worship idols. That's part of the good news. Why is that? It's because of the word we see in verse 15. Idols are vain things. That word just means useless. Idols are useless things. They're empty. Those idols, they can't do what worship is asking them to do. When when we worship something, we're putting our hope in that thing. We're, We're putting our hope in that thing to sustain us and care for us and provide for us. But see, anything aside from God can't sustain our worship. It can't deliver. It can't provide that thing. Anything aside from God will, will always in some way let us down. And in this way, all idols are vain things. So see that command to only worship God, that, that's a command that is entirely for our good, right? It's a command that's kind of like if you're about to drive over a bridge and it can't support the weight of your car, and somebody says, don't go across that bridge. That's not a restrictive command, right? That is kindness to you. The bridge can't support you. Don't go across. That's good news that they're telling you not to go across the bridge. That's what God's command is to only worship him. It's not restrictive. It's his love for us. So, so think about it practically. It's not like God is keeping you from worshiping money. No, God is freeing you from worshiping money. Do you see that? That's the way that all idols work. He, he's not keeping you from putting your hope in your family. He's freeing you from putting your hope in your family. He, he's not keeping you from placing faith in your physical health. He's freeing you from placing faith in your physical health. Verse 15, we bring you good news that you should turn from these empty things to a living God. Turning away from idols is part of the good news. So, so a question, when, when something goes wrong in your life and you've got that moment to think about how you're going to seek comfort, because this is how humans are set up. Something hard happens and in the moment you think, how am I going to seek comfort right now? And there's options in front of you. Where do you go first in your head? Where's the very first place you go in your head to seek comfort? Where, where does your mind go first when you need saving from something. Well, here's the test of where it should go. First, it should go to something that's living. 
It should go to something that is alive. This is the main point the apostles make about why it's foolish to worship Zeus or, or any other Greek god. They're not real. But, but God is real. Verse 15 calls him the living God. So don't worship your money or your job or your hobbies. Those, those things aren't even good enough to be alive, right? But, but we serve a living God. We're, we're tempted to, to put our hope in, in other things, though, that are alive. So test one, is this thing alive? Should I put my hope in it? If it's not alive, no, right? Bypass that thing. Go to something else. But what about things that are living but that are other than God, that tempt us to, to give our glory, put our hope in those things. So we're tempted to put our hope in our children sometimes, right? Or our spouse or a potential spouse or our friends. So those, those people are alive, right? So they're better than money in that way, but they're still not worthy of our worship. And they certainly can't bear the weight of our hope. No, the only one in the universe who can bear the weight of worship is the one who created the universe in the first place. Verse 15 again, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So the only one who can bear the weight of your hope is, is the one who bore the weight of the creation of the world. So if you're being tempted to worship something, question one is, is this a living thing, right? If it's not like money or a car or a house or a career, don't worship that thing. If it is a living thing, like a spouse or a group of friends or children, question two is, did this person create the universe? Okay, that's your test. So if I'm tempted to put my hope in my children, then question one, they check it off. Yep, they are alive. Praise God. Question two, did they create the universe? Nope, they did not. If you can't answer yes to both those questions, don't worship that thing. That's what Paul and Barnabas are, are telling us. They're saying, don't worship us like, like we're Greek gods. That's, that's a vain, it's an empty thing. And what God who's worthy of worship deserves all the hope that, that we have to give. Don't put your hope in idols. So this has been the advice of the apostles to this group of non-Christians that are trying to worship them, right? They shouldn't put any hope in idols. Instead, give it all, all the glory to the one true and living God who created all things. But we see a hint of this at the end of our passage. These people might be thinking, okay, well then how come we've never heard of this God? So these guys are telling us not to put our hope in these Greek gods that we're familiar with, and we have a lot of them. They're, they're telling us about this God that we've never heard of before. So how come we have never heard of these gods? Paul and Barnabas, they seem to anticipate this question at the end of our passage. Verse 16, they say, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So remember, until the book of Acts, in human history, God had really only been working with one nation of people and then a handful of folks that kind of, st kind of stumble upon Israel. The vast majority of people had no idea about the one true living God. They didn't know anything about him. It's only Israel that had been given his word, his commands, his instructions, his promises. The other nations didn't have his word. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Okay, but, but did that mean that they couldn't have known that God existed or they couldn't know anything about him? No, it doesn't mean that. Verse 17, yet God did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So even though God didn't give the other nations his word, he still gave them witnesses to himself. He gave them things that were telling them there is a God and here's what he's like. He gave them these evidences, not only that he was there, but that he's good. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good 
by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So when those non-believing nations, when they received rain and good crops and food on their tables and joy in the world in various ways, those were all witnesses pointing them to the existence of a good God. Every one of those good things was a witness pointing to the existence of a good God. And if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've recognized this truth. Do you realize that everything good in your life, so your family and your food and your friends and your hobbies, all of it is a gift from God to you. So, so even though you may not pay much attention to God or his son or his word or his church, he's paid lots of attention to you throughout your life. He's given you all of these good things because he loves you. And he has done good to you. But, but what he really wants to do is the best good for you, which is to give you salvation through Christ. If you'll come to his son and trust in him alone to pay for your sins. Well, see, that's a, that's a God worth worshiping, right? He's so incredibly gracious. And, and here's what this means for us as Christians as we close. We shouldn't feel the need to defend God. That's our last point. Don't feel the need to defend God. When it comes to humans, when it comes to people like us that have a sinful nature, there's always going to be this temptation to say God isn't fair, to blame him for things. Human history is a history of people doing just that. Even as Christians, we do that sometimes. People will oftentimes blame God. We see it all the way back in Genesis 3 when Satan is tempting Eve. And then between the two of them, they sort of say, yeah, you know what? It doesn't seem fair. How come he doesn't let us eat from this tree? So he gives them all the other trees. But you see what Eve does is she singles in on the one thing. That's not fair. Why can't I have that tree? That happens all the way back in Genesis 3, right? And it happens all throughout scripture. We see it in the book of Job, the end of that book where Job is questioning God. God, you really shouldn't have done me like this. What did I do to deserve this? This afternoon, in fact, that'd probably be encouraging if you read the last three or four chapters of Job and look at God's response to Job it's pretty great <laughs> where God says, who are you that's questioning me, right? But that's what we do as humans. We question the Lord. You see it in Romans 9 when it comes to the doctrine of predestination, that God chooses some for salvation and not others. Paul anticipates the response. He says, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? In other words, God, you're being unfair. There will always be people that will charge God with being unfair, charge God with being unjust. And the people in our passage may have been tempted to do the same. They may have been thinking, well, if this God is real, how come he hasn't revealed himself to us? That's on him, right? Not on us. He didn't reveal himself to us. But see, the apostle's point is God did reveal himself and God's revelation to them was good. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And see, God has revealed himself in these same ways to everyone who has ever lived on the earth. Now, for a lot of folks, he's revealed himself even more through his word. But at the least, he's revealed himself through creation and the provision he gives through that creation. He's, he's revealed himself in that way to every person who has ever lived. And this is significant because it means that God is just and right to judge people outside of Christ for their sins. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter one, verse 18. 
There he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's the significant part for what we're talking about. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. On the future day of judgment, when when those folks who haven't trusted in Christ to pay for their sins, when they'll be judged by the Lord, his judgment will be fair. It will be just because he's given every human a lifetime's worth of good witnesses to him. So you see again how good and gracious God is. And by contrast, look at how blind and stupid sinful man is. So, So in this story, once Paul and Barnabas explain how good and kind God is, how people should only put their hope in him, the one true living God, do people instantly repent and believe? They don't. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Isn't that wild? So they go through all of this, explaining who the one true God is, explaining the gospel, and people are like, yeah, we hear all that, uh, but we still want to kill this ox and offer it as a sacrifice to you, Paul and Barnabas. It's crazy. For, for as gracious as God is, sinful man is just as stupid and blind. So he, here's a practical thing we should remember, even as Christians. Anytime God's ways seem unfair to us, that's not actually reality. That's us being stupid. That's it. Anytime God's ways seem unfair to us, that's not actually reality. That's just our sinful flesh's stupidity. So don't feel the need to defend God. We, we sometimes treat God like the guy on trial who might get convicted. So we step up as, as the uh, public defender and we're like, oh, I'm going to do a good thing. God needs me. What's he going to do? What's he going to do if my coworkers convict him of guilt? No, I'll be the one. I'll represent the Lord. Listen, God is not the one who's being tried. He's the judge. The judge doesn't need a public defender. He, he doesn't need a PR campaign. God is God. He's worthy of worship. He doesn't need our defending. In fact, a God who's worthy of worship, he doesn't need anything from you. Praise the Lord for it. But you need everything from him. You need everything from him. And that's what he's given you in the gospel. He, he's given you himself to worship in place of the empty idols of this world. And he's given you himself through the work of Christ by trust alone in Christ alone. Praise God for it. Let's pray together.